This morning, we are going to be starting a new series entitled Making Much of Jesus. Uh, it comes from Matthew chapter 5. In the passage it says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Making much of Jesus. And we're going to be looking over the next several weeks at different aspects of everyday life. And we want to ask the question, how do I make much of Jesus in these different areas of life? At work, at rest, in relationships, with my money. How do I live so that others will give glory to God because of the example that I show in my life? All right? We good? Does this make sense? Are we tracking? Get a head nod? Where are the head nodders at? All right, good. There's a lot of them right here. Good. All right. So over the next several weeks, these are the topics we're going to be covering. Different preachers will be here in the pulpit. Um, and we're looking forward to hearing these messages. All right. Throughout history, there have been questions that have puzzled people for as long as people have been around. Where did we come from? What happens when you die? Why did the chicken cross the road? Right? Which armrest is mine at the movie theater? <laughs> These questions that there are no answers to. But as we look back, there's one question that has been a consistent theme throughout all of history, as far as we have recorded. And that question is what is the key to living a happy life? What is the key to human flourishing? If you look at our culture, one of the messages that our culture will tell you is be yourself. Be your authentic self, and that will lead to your happiest life. The Beatles said all you need is love. The American Dream says it's two and a half kids and a white picket fence and a white Tesla. <laughs> right? This morning we're going to look at what Jesus' answer to this question is in Matthew chapter 5. Turn there with me. If you're using the Bible in the pew, it's page 759. Here is my proposition to you this morning. What is the key to living a happy life? To live a life of worship to God alone. To live a life of worship to God alone. If you've been part of church life for any length of time, this word worship has some connotations, right? You might think, that's what we just did. We worshiped. Or that's what I come here to do on a Sunday. I come here to worship. But that's an anemic understanding of the word. If we have a proper understanding of what the Christian life is meant to be, then what we would understand is that we live our lives in worship unto God. Our daily life is to be lived in worship as unto God. And it's when we understand that that we can have fullness of life in him. And so before we get into our text this morning, we're not going to dive right in just yet, I want to set some background for the text. I want to cover four things that should help us understand how the people heard the words that Jesus spoke, okay? You guys are 21st century people sitting in an air-conditioned building in Orange County, California. That's not the people that heard this message when Jesus spoke it, okay? So I want to invite you, take a deep breath, pause for a moment, and put on your imagination hat. Okay, imagine you're a Jewish person who wants to love God and wants to follow him. And you're living in Judea. And I'm going to give you some of that background information so you can put yourself there in your mind. Okay? 
We're in the book of Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament. You go back a couple pages, you're in the Old Testament. What happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament? There's about 400 years, and the Old Testament ends with Ezra reestablishing Judaism. This was a good thing. The people of Israel were in captivity. They came out of Babylon. Ezra puts them back on the right track. And as far as we can tell, intertestamental history tells us that was a good thing. Judaism was thriving, and even as the people got dispersed, they had a cultural identity because they knew their religion and they knew their God. And over the course of history, the Jews would lose their land. They'd be conquered by the Persians and the Greeks and the Maccabeans. And by the time we get to Matthew, the, the land of Judea, the land of the Jews was actually under Roman control. Okay, so the, the, uh, Rome was over all of the areas that we're looking at here in Matthew. And you hear names like Herod the Great, right? Remember Jesus was born and Herod ordered that all the babies would be killed. Herod was a Roman ruler. By the time Jesus was an adult, where he is here, Pilate was in charge of this area. And the reality was, Rome didn't really care much about this area. As long as they were friendly to the Roman cause, they let them rule themselves. And so the person that was really in charge was Caiaphas, the high priest. And we see Caiaphas in chapter 26 of Matthew when they plot to kill Jesus, right? And so the Jews had an identity, they knew their religion, but they're in this land that's occupied by these Roman forces. They don't have their own land. One more thing, their religion told them redemption would come. A Messiah will come and he will restore things to the way they should be. You'll have land. You'll have a king. He'll be powerful. You'll be a people. You'll be a temple. God will be with you. And where we find ourselves here in Matthew, none of that exists. They're occupied. They don't have land. The gods are the pagan gods of the Romans. And so these Jews are waiting for their Messiah. In chapter 3 of Matthew, we have John the Baptist. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus came on the scene? What did he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here comes the Messiah. Oh, great. Here we are, Jews, waiting for Messiah to come, right? John the Baptist, there he is. I see him. Here he comes. Great. In chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're a Jew, you love God, you want to follow God, you're waiting for this Messiah to come and change things. There he is. And out walks a guy that probably looks something like me. And what's his message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What are you talking about? There's the Romans right there. There's the occupiers. We don't have land. You're not powerful. You look like me. What are you talking about, Jesus? You feel the tension? Who is this guy? What is this, what is this kingdom that he's talking about? Second thing, second point of background information that I want to share with you. Remember the great question of life? What is the key to living a happy life? We have two cultures right here in Matthew. We have the Jewish culture and we have this Greco-Roman culture. And these two cultures had two different ideas of what it was to live a happy life. They saw it differently. 
in the Jewish mind, it was pretty simple. Live in covenant relationship with God and live in the fear of the Lord. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, these are phrases that sound familiar. Right? Uh, Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. What God is doing is he's establishing a relationship. I'm your God, you're going to follow me, and we're going to be faithful to each other. That's a covenant relationship. We see other covenants throughout the Old Testament as well. Proverbs chapter 1, the book of wisdom, right? Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Live in covenant with the relationship, live in a covenant relationship with God, live in the fear of the Lord. This is how the Jewish mind saw what it was to live the good life. Love God, obey the law, you will flourish. Does that make sense? Love God, obey the law, you'll flourish. This mindset, this Jewish mindset, was very different than the Greco-Roman mindset of the time. From the Greeks, we got philosophy, this mental ascent, thinking about life, and the, the, the path to a, a, a flourishing life for the Greco-Roman mind was this pursuit of virtue. Virtue. This attainable good. And you, you read guys like Plato and Aristotle, and they had ideas on what that meant. They, they all had different ideas on what that meant. But what they agreed on was this. It was the process of pursuing it that brought you happiness. It was the process of seeking the virtue that produced a good life. Okay? It wasn't tied to religion. It wasn't tied to any kind of theological idea. It was tied to pursuing the best version of yourself. Again, they all had a different idea of what the virtue was, but it was the pursuit of the virtue that mattered. And so you can see how these two understandings of happiness are very different. One's God-centered relationship, obedience, One's man-centered, enlightenment, thinking, mental ascent. They're different. And this crowd that hears this sermon would have been aware of both of these sets of values. Okay? Who are the people that heard this sermon? Turn back to chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him, from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. What words stand out to you? Disease, affliction, pain, demons. This is not the crowd that you want to gather for your campaign announcement that you're running for Messiah. Okay? This is a scraggly bunch. Continues on, verse five, chapter one, or chapter five, verse one. 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Here's another group of people. We might think these are the 12. The 12 are actually not named until chapter 10 in the book. So he, it, it already mentioned he went down to the sea and called people. It's probably just the, whoever he convinced to follow him. All right? So we have the crowd, the afflicted, these disciples. These are not powerful people. These are outcasts. They're broken. They don't have respect. This is the bottom half of the barrel. And it is to these people that Jesus brings this message of blessing. One more thing to understand. The language of the sermon. This is important. If I tell you a joke, what's the point of, the, what's the point of me trying to tell you a joke? What am I trying to accomplish? Get a laugh, right? Trying to get a chuckle out of you. Knock, knock. All right, see, we understand this process. Knock, knock, you hear it, your brain goes, oh, that's a joke, I have a job, I'm going to respond, okay? We understand how jokes work. All right, here's the $10 word for the day. When you see blessed here, this is a specific mnemonic device that Jesus is using. When they heard this word, their ears would have perked up because they know what this is doing. Like, you know what a joke is, they know what a, here's the word, macarism is. Here's your Jeopardy word for the day. Macarism. Okay? I went too far. Macarism. The word macarism comes from the word makarios, and that's the, that's the word in the Greek here in the text. Makarios are the poor in spirit. Makarios are those who mourn. Okay? So a macarism is a statement that attributes happiness or flourishing to a particular person or state. It's a pronouncement that a certain way of being in the world produces human flourishing. Here's an example of what, what it, I'm going to clarify this. I want to make sure this is clear. Brody's up here playing guitar, right? I, if I get a guitar and I give him the guitar, I gift it to him. We can say that Brody was gifted a guitar, right? I gave him a gift, now he has been gifted a guitar. I can also say that Brody is a gifted musician. He's talented. He can sing. He can play. He is gifted. Those are different, right? One, he's gifted. That is how he is. That's who he is. The other is he's a recipient of something. A macarism is a tool that explains how something is, not that you received something. Okay? So macarism is not describing what we should do as Christians or how we should be as Christians, but a macarism is describing the blessedness of what we actually are as Christians. What you are currently, now. That is what a macarism is explaining. This is a common tool. It was a common linguistic tool in the time. Look at Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If we misunderstand the macarism here, what we will read is, if you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, and you don't sit in the seat of scoffers, then God will bless you. That's not what this is saying. This is saying you are living your life, you're thriving 
when you don't walk with the sinners and you don't, walk, you don't sit with the scoffers and you meditate on the law day and night. If we're not careful when we come to the Beatitudes, we will read, if you are poor in spirit, then God will bless you. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, as you are poor in spirit, right now you are blessed. You are thriving. You are flourishing as you are all of these things. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek. Okay? And we'll unpack that as we go along. There was a guy 150 years before Jesus. We have his writings in the book of Sirach. And listen to some of his macarisms. Blessed is the man who lives to see the downfall of his enemies. That sounds a little self-serving, doesn't it? Not something Jesus would say. Blessed is the one who does not serve an inferior. Yeah, in this Greek and Roman world that, that they lived in, power dynamics were a huge thing. You don't want to be at the bottom. Blessed is the one who has a listening audience when he speaks. That's nice. I don't want to talk to an empty room, right? And so we see, this was a common tool. Teachers took it from something that could be used like the psalm, something good and holy, mixed it with cultural ideas, and it was just a common linguistic tool, a mechanism. So when these people heard the first word, when they heard that first blessed, they would have thought, oh, okay, you're going to tell us how to be healthy and wealthy and wise. And we're none of those things, so hopefully, like, you can actually show us how to do that. We're the bottom of the barrel, remember? To hear this blessed, oh, let's see what this guy has to say. Here's another teacher. What is the key to living a flourishing life? Jesus begins to teach them. Chapter 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What are you talking about, Jesus? Remember, the Jews are expecting victory and blessing and freedom from oppressors, and they want God to be honored. And what Jesus is saying is, this broken state, exactly where you are, poor in spirit, this is the place that God wants you to be in to experience life in its fullest. Poor in spirit is not a lack of faith or a lack of belief. It's a recognition of how much we need him. And I'm reminded of Mark chapter 9. Mark records a story of a dad that had a demon-possessed boy. And he heard that Jesus was coming, so he brought his son to see if Jesus could heal him. And he, he gets to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can help my son, help him. And Jesus says, why do you say, if I can help? He says, all things are possible for one who believes. And the dad's response is interesting. The dad says, well, then help my unbelief. And I've puzzled that, what what does this mean? What what is this response? Jesus ends up healing the boy. But what was that response from the dad? Last year, our youngest daughter was born in July. And three days after she was born, we ended up in the neonatal intensive care unit. She wasn't oxygenating blood. She was losing color. And so here we are, day three, and our baby's hooked up, all kinds of tubes. We end up staying in the NICU for 21 days. It was everything, it took everything in my power to not fret and be anxious and be fearful. 
My wife was there in the daytime. I was there at night. And I'm sitting there staring at this baby that the doctors have no answers to what she's struggling with. And if I sat there and just relaxed, what would happen is my thoughts would drift into fear and anxiety right away. What's going to happen to her? Will she survive? Will she be permanently damaged? It didn't take any effort. All I had to do was sit there and relax, and my brain went in that direction. And by God's grace, I had the, the experience counseling and the presence of mind to think, okay, well, don't think those thoughts. So I would put my app, my Bible app, to play the Bible just so I'm literally listening to something that's not my own thoughts. Or to play Christian encouraging music that I'm not familiar with, so I have to listen to it. Because I can only think about one thing at a time, right? Might as well think about something that's not my anxiety. And I remember a moment sitting there. Sorry. I remember sitting there thinking, God, I don't want to have these fearful thoughts. I don't want to have these anxious thoughts. And the dad came to my mind. And I prayed the prayer, help my unbelief. Lord, help my unbelief. You are in control. You are powerful. Help my unbelief. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who know their need for God. Verse 4, let's look at these next three together. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think verse 6 is kind of the key to understanding these three. Hunger and thirst. Is that fun? You're hungry, you're thirsty, you might have a headache. I mean, come on, we've developed a word in our culture for this, right? What do we call this? I get hangry. It's a very visceral experience. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. And the way Matthew uses the word, I think a simple way to understand righteousness is right relationships between two people. When I live in a right relationship with God, I'm living a righteous life. That will produce righteousness in my life. When I live right with, my, with others, that's righteous living. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why are they hungering and thirsting for it? Because it's not there. You look at the world and you see brokenness. You see unrighteousness. And blessed are those who long to see that made right. Blessed are those who mourn. What are they mourning over? This. The state of the world. The state of the brokenness that they see. We don't like mourning. You get close to morning, there's a pill for that. Or there's a drink for that. Or there's a relationship for that. Or there's a Netflix show you can binge watch to take your mind off of the thing that's going to make you mourn. We don't like mourning. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see the unrighteousness, you see the brokenness of the world as it is, and it grieves you. And that pushes you to find hope in the reality that God will make these things right. God himself will be their comfort, is what scripture tells us. 
Blessed are the meek, the unimportant, the not powerful, for they shall inherit the earth. We're not going to go through all of these. Blessed are the pure in heart. Here's an interesting one. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know what this doesn't say? I've said this before. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Didn't say that. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacekeeping is easy. Hey, look, there's peace. Great. I'm peacekeeping. Peacemaking is hard. Peacemaking means you're going to where there is no peace and you're fighting to bring peace. If two people are fighting and you try to go in, the, in between them to bring peace to that situation, what ends up happening? You become the target, right? Now you're caught in the crossfire. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Doing the work of the Son of God. Wow. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 10. This one is so important. He repeats it in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here's the key to understanding what Jesus is teaching in these Beatitudes. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Imagine sitting there and listen to this guy say these things. In what world is this the good life, Jesus? In what world is mourning and meekness and hunger and thirst? How in the world is that the good life? And therein lies part of the lesson that Jesus is teaching. The reality of the reward that is coming in heaven should shape how followers of Christ understand and respond to the circumstances of life that we experience today. This is exactly what he's teaching. The fulfillment of this life is not found in this life. The fulfillment of this life is found in the life that is coming. Side note, this is crazy talk. There's a God in the sky, and when you die, you're going to go see him one day. And when you get there, everything will be really good. It's crazy. And it's exactly the message that Jesus is teaching. This is a life of worship. In every moment, at every turn, in every high and every low, when you look at your life, you see God's hand. You trust his wisdom. You're comforted by his power. And the reality of his love for you is like a soothing balm for your anxiety. Blessed are you. Flourishing is found exactly where God has you. He's all powerful, he's all wise. If he wanted you to be in a different circumstance, in a different situation, you would be in a different situation. And in his providence, he has you exactly where you are. 
This doesn't mean don't have aspirations. Don't set goals. I'm not saying anything like that. But it does mean that as you do those things, as you set goals, as you chart the course for your life, you have to temper those things with the truth that your life is in God's hands. Successes will come where he has them for you, and failures will come in the same way. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Where is your heart this morning? When you look at the circumstances of your life, what attitude arises inside of you? Are you frustrated? Are you tired? Are you discontent? Or are you trusting and waiting and hoping in the Lord? Is God's presence in your life sustaining you? Encouraging you through the hardships? Or are you holding your breath until the storm blows over and just waiting for God to change it? Where is your heart this morning? Okay, Jesus, we get it. We get it. Thanks for opening our eyes. It's not in this life. We get it. Okay, good. What, what, so what do you want us to do about it? What should we do? Verse 13. Matthew continues. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Until you can understand and live in this flourishing way of the Beatitudes, you won't be effective in being the salt of the earth. You'll always be holding your breath for the next thing. The change of circumstance, the next payday. I'll be whole and happy when I'm married or remarried or rid of my anxiety or when I live on my own. But that's not how Jesus is calling us to live, looking forward to the next thing. He's calling us to flourish in the midst of trials and the circumstances of life that he has us in. He is in control and all will be made right. Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Tim Mackey has a helpful analogy of, of this portion of scripture here. Um, he said if you, if you look at the Beatitudes as kind of disjointed ideas, they don't really fit together very well. They're kind of separate ideas, different thoughts. But he used this picture and it was really helpful. He said, if you imagine each Beatitude like a piece of a stained glass window, what picture does it paint when you put all the pieces together? And so he, he said this, I'm going to read it to you. And I, th I thought it was really helpful to see what Jesus is doing here. He says, can you think of somebody who came from poor, insignificant circumstances, who mourned and grieved over the state of this world and over the people that he met, and he was extremely important 
but he did not think of himself as important. And he longed to see God's world set right. And so with small acts of mercy to hurting individuals, he showed his pure devotion to the cause of the kingdom. And he inserted himself into dangerous situations between people who hated each other, and he got persecuted. In fact, he was killed for it. Does that ring a bell? Sounds like Jesus. Mackey continues, The death of Jesus wasn't some unfortunate turn of events. The death of Jesus is the way he epitomized the values of the kingdom. It was the ultimate reversal of expectations. The king himself died. The high made low, the innocent made guilty, and us, the sinners, made right with God above. These people were expecting a health, wealth plan from the Messiah that was going to take off and take them into the kingdom. And he gave them these beatitudes. And what he's doing is he's calling us to live like him. This is who he is. So in these Beatitudes, on this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, what do we see here? Do we see victory? Do we see your best life now? Do we see empowerment and power successes? Not at all. What we see here is an anticipation of the life that is to come. And that's the secret to the good life, is what Jesus is telling us. Church, I'm afraid we've bought the American dream. We've ignored the message of Christ. This world is not our home. We're sojourners, we're strangers. And the world will hate you, and you will be persecuted. This is the message of Christ. Flourishing is found in life, in this life, in light of an eternal reality. God is working now, but the work won't be fully done until I see him face to face in the next life. And so how do we make much of Jesus in our daily life? Four thoughts and we'll be done. The first has to start with the right heart. Lord, help me to see things the way you see them. I'm reminded of the psalm, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew my spirit within me. Change my heart, Lord. The anxieties of life weigh me down. The stresses of life are burdening Change my heart. Second thought, trust God's sovereignty. Trust his sovereignty for the circumstances that he has ordained for your life. He has a plan. He is wise. He loves you. Will you trust him? Let's be real. When you've not trusted him and you pressed the issue or you made the rash decision or you spoke the harsh word, that does not go well. And you get into that relationship and it falls apart and you know you shouldn't have done it. 
That is not a happy ending. You've seen the folly of sin. You know the emptiness that it leaves. Trust the Lord. Trust His timing. Blessed are you now in the midst of your trials. Third idea, long for the future. Learn to cherish what is to come. From what I hear, eternity is a really long time. You see this in all the all of the New Testament writers, Paul and Peter and James, longing for what is going to come and using that as motivation for living this life. Long for the future. And lastly, love Christ more. Love Christ more. Open your Bible. Find other people who love Jesus. Get out, serve people, be his hands and feet. How do we make much of Jesus? Learn to love him more. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Get me back up there, Rob. When people look at your life, do they see that you have a heavenly father who cares for you? Do they see that you have a heavenly father who loves you? Or do they see someone who's hopelessly struggling just like they are? Here's a challenging thought. When you get to heaven, will anyone be there because your good works showed them a picture of God that brought them to see his glory? That's a challenging thought. And that's why we want to go through this series this summer. We want to live in such a way to make much of Jesus. How do we do that in these different areas of our life? I'll have the music team come up as we close. Close your Bible, close your notes, put your phone down. Close your eyes and listen to the words of Christ. When he saw the crowds, he ascended to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Flourishing are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are the mourners, because they will be comforted. Flourishing are the humble, because they will inherit the world. Flourishing are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful, because they will be given mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart, because they will see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers, because they will be called the children of God. Flourishing are the ones who are persecuted on account of righteousness, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are you, whenever people revile and slander 
and speak all kinds of evil things against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, because your reward is great in heaven. In the same way, people slandered the prophets who came before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if this salt ceases to be salty, how will it be made salty again? This salt is good for nothing except being thrown away where it will be trampled by people. You are the light of the world. A city that is built upon a mountain cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. Rather, they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In this way, let your light shine in the presence of everyone such that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.